you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Mr. President, up here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee. Time to become an American hero. Darkmyths.org and the Opus Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. explain something to people. Who you might hear, you have a young boy. He's 19 years old. And he comes from a small town. A small town anywhere USA. But this is small town Texas. And um, he wasn't worldly. He hadn't been a lot of places. He never had been on a plane, go somewhere. He really didn't know very much. He was just a kid. And he was taught that everybody's your friend, and what everybody says is the truth until they prove to you that you can no longer believe them. That's the way I was then, but not anymore. Um, and I know sometimes it may be hard for someone to understand how you could be so naive and how you could be into something. Well, all I asked somebody to do, I said, just walk. Just walk a few miles in my moccasins. And I think you will be able to see and understand something maybe you never did before. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is the Lone Gunman Podcast, episode number 133. I'm your host, Rob Clark, and with me tonight is Tim Yaccarino. He runs a blog over at JFKennedy1963.com. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. Now, Tim, I've, I've had my eye on you for a bunch of years now. You're doing some great work over there at your website. Uh, a lot of great articles over there. We'll, we'll, we'll get to what... Uh, caught my eye a couple years ago some research you've been doing uh but first uh just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and kind of how what got you interested in the case yeah um well when i was eight years old uh that was around the time of the 25th anniversary 
And uh, my grandmother uh, introduced me to, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy. And at that time, they were doing a lot of, you know, specials. And, you know, that's just one of those peaks in the assassination, you know, that people gain interest in. And uh, she kind of got me into it, gave me my first book, which was The Death of a President. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I, I kind of, you know, just kind of grasped to the, you know, to the research aspect. Uh, it seemed like every birthday I asked for a, a Kennedy book. I remember my ninth birthday, I got Crossfire by Jim Mars. Uh, you know, I've gotten Best Evidence when I was 11. Uh, you know, just, you know, not normal, typical things uh, kids asked for when they were, uh, you know, for their birthdays. But everybody knew to get me something Kennedy. And my parents at one point just stopped because they didn't know what books I had. There was too many to count. <laughs> and it, it just uh, it just grew from there. And, you know, as I got older, uh, my interest just kept getting more and more. And uh, I was able to, you know, go through college. And I, you know, wrote my master thesis on JFK and the, the myth and the image that he portrayed. And, you know, the assassination yeah, was just I mean, always, I, I kind of share a common bond with you there. I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead, no, Tim. Yeah. I thought... yeah, I was just saying, it's just always, you know, been a part of my life. And, uh, you know, I may, we may be young in, in years, but, you know, when you're researching and reading books since you're eight, you know, you kind of you kind of know some things. Yeah, for sure. You know, and look, one of the first books I read, too, was, was uh, Crossfire by Jim Mars. And I think I was still in high school then. I wasn't quite as young, quite as young as you reading these reading these books. I mean, best evidence. That's crazy, man. You were reading that at eleven. But uh, yeah. And then I read a Jim Garrison book, and then the movie came out, and that you know that was it. I'm hooked. I'm in. And uh, you know, ever since then, you know, you got to take some time off every once in a while to kind of recharge your batteries. And and but that interest always seems to come back. Yeah, and and it's weird because like I know with me like I, I know like you said we kind of just you know we need a break every once in a while, but then like I'll randomly go on eBay and I'll see something or I'll see something on t TV and then all of a sudden my interest just like sparks and then I'm I'm back into it you know and then I'm go a solid three four months of looking at documents and whatever I can and it's just you know it's always been a part of my life and I don't think that's ever gonna go away. Nope. I think it'll always be there. And, you know, it's, it was the part of a lot of people's lives, you know, a lot of great researchers, especially these first generation guys, um, you know, they, they spent a really long time looking into the case and, and none of them really ever got to see it to the finish, to the finish line, so to speak, but did some great work along the way and made some great contributions to the research community for sure. You know, guys like Mark Lane and Harold Weisberg and all these guys we've lost, um, you know, all we can do is stand on the shoulders and, and just keep going. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I uh, recently was able to go to Dallas, uh, you know, just a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, just being in that area, being around Dealey Plaza, I was actually able to stay just a couple blocks away. Uh, it was the old uh, Hotel Lawrence. Uh, you know, they kind of remodeled it now, but I was able to stay right in that area and it was a Saturday. We went down, and I took my family. And I noticed that so many people were there, hundreds of people. And it was just all different kinds, you know, all different types of people. But mostly it was people dressed in football gear. You know, Baltimore Ravens were playing the Dallas Cowboys the next day. And so I asked the, one of the vendors that was there if this was, you know, normal for people to 
this many people. And he says, only one of football games in. But they, they come here. And that just got me really thinking, like, you know, they, they may not be there, you know, for the same reasons we would go there. But they're there. They know the history. They, they, the history about it. They're, they're curious. You know, they're looking up at that sixth floor. They're looking behind that fence. You know, all the things that we look at, you know, and it's just that we can keep this uh, interest in, you know, in it going. You know, and I noticed, you know, people, other people look like they might have been dragged there. People were playing football. <laughs> people were having a picnic. And it's just kind of, you know, you, you sit back and you're looking around. It's like, you know, they're not they're not here for the same reasons I'm here, but they're here. And, you know, that's going to keep not only the memory, you know, of John F. Kennedy alive, but, you know, the assassination and just that, you know, trying to find out the truth. And those people are there. They're They're interested in, you know. The research, you know, community, you know, we, we need to be able to, uh, you know, show documents and provide them things because you know, the interest is still there. Oh, for sure. You know, that's that's the main thing. At least they're there. And hopefully while they're there, you know, something can catch their interest and get get them interested in the case a little more and they do a little bit more digging. And because, uh, you know, there's never there's there, there's never a shortage of room for you know, interested researchers into this case. I mean, there seems to be, you know, thousands of them all over the place, even now, um, 53 years later. Um, but you, you were telling me you got a chance to go to uh, the, the Lancer conference this year, didn't you? I, I, I did. And actually, um, the, the Lancer conference kicked off on Friday. And on Thursday, uh, Chris Gallup put together a, a luncheon. I think this was his fourth one. And he'd been asking me to go ever since he put together his first one. And finally, I was able to to go to it. And uh, I was very I was looking forward to it because it was going to be in a laid back atmosphere. It was at you know, at a restaurant and, uh, you know, it was more one on one with the, you know, the presenters that he had. And, you know, you got to you got to meet Gary Shaw and you got to, you know, ask him questions. And, you know, it it was definitely a laid back um, atmosphere, but at the same time, you know, you, I learned some things and, you know, it was a great way to kind of just kick everything off, uh, you know, and then going into the Lancer conference, you know, they had a bunch of, uh, you know, great speakers. I I know by far I was definitely one of the youngest ones there and it seemed like it to me, you know, I'm 36, but sometimes when I wear a hat, I look like I'm 17. <laughs> and uh, so but I was sitting there and I was taking it all in. And, you know, the biggest thing that I got out of it was, you know, documents. You know, they did a two hour presentation on documents. And, you know, that's going to be boring to a lot of people. But the documents is where, you know, these little you know nuggets that we can find, they're in it. And I mean, it, 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 a lot of people don't want to take the time. They just want to, you know, assume things and make these claims. But unless you have that, you know, piece of paper, that document to kind of back everything up, I mean, you really don't have a backbone to what you're saying. And I really, that's why the biggest thing I took away. And I, in my notes from the conference, I can't even count how many times I wrote down primary sources because that was just the thing I just kept hearing over and over again. Yeah, it's it's definitely important. And look, just as an example, for example, you know, a friend of mine has been on the show a bunch of times, Carmine uh, Savastano. He's the author of Two Princes and a King. He spoke at Lancer this year. And today, just today on Facebook, he posted a link on his blog where he wrote up a little story. He found a document uh, pertaining to Guy Bannister. 
whether or not, I mean, this is a CIA internal memo, um, basically examining whether or not they could use Guy Bannister as an, as a, you know, an asset where they kind of investigated him and, and they kind of approved it from like 1960 to 62. But then like, from further working with him and further investigation into him, they determined that he wasn't very successful at what he was doing. And they ceased all ties in 1962 with Guy Bannister. So, you know, when people want to say, okay, well, you know, maybe Guy Bannister was working for the CIA. Therefore, you know, if Oswald was working for Bannister, then by proxy Oswald was, was doing work for the CIA, this and that and the other. But now we have a document that clearly states that Guy Bannister was not working with the CIA after 1962, which is, you know, important. But yeah, man, um, you know, things like that, definitely, definitely much more needed in the case. You know, I think down the street there in Dallas, there was a conference going on. And I don't think many documents were being shown down that way. <laughs> no, um, and, and that's the thing, you know, about that other conference too. You know, we we do have, two, you know, two conferences going on. And, you know, they they make claims, you know, and I think they just, I don't know if they just lack the effort or time, but, you know, maybe, you know, if they claim some of these things and they had a, a document to back it up, you know, I, I might listen a little bit more. But, you know, when people are just making claims, it, it's it's hard to, you know, re- really pay attention to them because they can just say whatever they want. And, uh, you know, that's just like me. I can say whatever I want, but unless I actually have something to back it up nobody's gonna believe me yeah you know i was watching the the great debate of this year between roger stone and gerald posner and uh i I didn't watch all of it i just couldn't bring myself to do that because i really don't like either one of them very much but i just knew i just knew with that guy roger stone representing the conspiracy side of things that there was going to be uh, some major guffaws, and I figured Posner would tear him apart pretty easily. Because I mean, say what you want about Gerald Posner, um, you know, he, I I read his book Case Closed, and you know, he knows a lot of the story, he knows a lot of the facts around the case. The problem is he just doesn't tell you everything. Um, he cherry picks. But, you know, to hear Roger Stone sit up there and say that Judith Barry Baker, uh, you know, testified before the Warren Commission and and to see Gerald Posner sit over there with a shitty grin on his face and then just pounce as soon as as soon as Stone was done talking. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, that, that I only watched uh, some of it. But even the part that I heard, he said that, you know, the movie JFK helped uh, get the House Select Committee going. Well, I mean, you're, you're off a few years there, buddy. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and Posner just sat back, you know, and that's who we had representing, you know, the conspiracy side. Because even like, you know, when I'm at work, you know, it's it's like I'm holding this. I'm in a secret club and uh, people you know, like, hey, well, you know, what are some of your hobbies? You know, well, you know, I, I research JFK. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, I mean, I, I have documents. I have things that can back it up. Whereas people like Roger Stone and all those others, you know, Judy Baker, th- those are the ones that they're thinking of that I am. And, and that hurts our, you know, that hurts when people, you know, want to hear our story because they might not believe us. Yeah, you know, and with with the lone nutters, 
you know, I, I just, I can't understand where they're coming from because with a case this big and this many things surrounding it and this many players, it only takes one thing, Tim, one thing to call into question and that can make it a conspiracy. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, I just exactly. don't understand. And that was something that that was something again that I you know at the conference you know, that was brought up a few times was you know a conspiracy. We could go uh, rob a bank, and I can be the one robbing the bank. But if you drove me there, guess what? <laughs> you're a conspirator. You know, you're in it. And uh, you know, with this case, uh, there's just too many documents that show that others were involved. Yeah, you know, I mean, sure, people like to point to the CIA and, and some rogue elements, you know, of the CIA may have been involved in the assassination. But, you know, as a whole, you know, I just I mean, look, they they had a lot to cover up back then, as, you know, when it comes to like their, you know, assassinations on foreign leaders and, and what they were trying to do in Cuba and, uh, you know, kind of some underhanded, dirty business that they didn't want made public. And, you know, even people with knowledge of this, like, you know, the president and RFK kind of knew what they were doing, um, but the public didn't. And that's the big thing. And that, I think, accounts for a lot of the cover up that we have, at least coming from the CIA. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the people just, you know, they at the time at that time, there was a lot of trust in government, you know, nothing in what we have right now. And. You know, just to even think that the uh, CIA or something at that time would would be involved, you know, that that was not even thought of back then. And, uh, you know, but it, it a lot of these first generation researchers, you know, had to, had to dig these documents out, had to, had to show that, yeah, there was a possibility. And uh, and then until that started happening, that's when the public opinion started to change, uh, you know, and all that. And then movie JFK. And and things just started turning, and now as we see, we have documents, and you know, next year, uh, even more from the CIA is going to come out. Yeah, we're about to get a whole lot more. The question is, <laughs> who's going to sift through them all and find all the find all the gems hidden in the haystacks? You know, <laughs> it's not like it's not like it used to be, man. When when people had a lot of time on their hands, you know, um. I'd love to go sit in the archives for days and days and days and days and just pour through documents, but it's just not feasible, you know? Yeah, I was able to, when I went to Washington, I, uh, when I was writing my thesis, my thesis was on uh, JFK and his, the myth that he created and Jackie created. And so I actually got to go to the archives and I spent a day there and I probably could have spent, <laughs> like you sacrificed, spent a month there. And it's just so much that you can look at because I started going, I'm looking for my thesis, but then I'm like, oh, wow, maybe I could pull up this paper or maybe I can do this. And then I started venturing off what I was actually there for. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to zero in. There's just so many to to kind of sift through. Oh, for sure. And, you know, now we got guys like Michael Best and uh, that one archive dot dot com where he's sitting at the Crest computer all day and just dumping millions of files out online. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Oh yeah. We did. That's what we need. We, we just, those documents are key and you know, we just got to find time to, to look through them all. Yeah. I mean, he's dumping all kinds of stuff, not just JFK either. I mean, there's a ton of stuff, but some of the stuff that he has dumped, you know, are some, some things I've never seen before, you know, when it, when it, you know, certain, certain people like Thomas Beckham, um, 
you know, I think he re, I think he re uh, indexed the, the Weisberg archive, which is p- kind of cool. It makes it kind of easier to find stuff on there. So there is good work being done still. And, uh, you know, hopefully next year we get these files released, man, for sure. I'm going to be mad if Trump somehow blocks it. <laughs> but hopefully he doesn't. I mean, he, hopefully he, should, he doesn't. He shouldn't have a problem with him coming out. <laughs> Hillary, I could see doing some shit like that, you know. Yeah. But I think we're okay with Trump. So, all right. Well, let's get into a little bit about just this article, man, because I, I saw it like a couple years ago, and it, and it really piqued my interest. And you've done a lot more work on it since, and kind of re-released it this year. Um. So let's get into it and tell everybody a little bit about the Acme, what is it, Acme Maintenance? Yeah, Acme Building Maintenance. Acme Building Maintenance. Um, it, yeah, just to kind of give a little background, you know, again, sifting through documents, you know, just reading statements. I, I was always big into looking at what people wrote early on in those first statements that they gave. I felt like their memory was more fresh of, you know, what was happening. So I kind of, I was reading just different employees of the Texas School Book Depository, and Eddie Piper came along, and I was reading his, and, you know, he was the the janitor uh, at the Texas School Book Depository, and in his statement, he, he, you know, he states that, you know, he usually left at around 6, 7 o'clock, but after he left, uh, a company by the name of Acme Building and Maintenance would come into the building, they had keys to the building, and they would work overnight. Uh, they would stay. They would clean the other floors. Um, and they also they had access uh, and keys to the building. Uh, you know, they they were. You know, I was I was surprised. I was like, wow, that seems that was very interesting to me. I'd never heard of this company. Didn't know somebody had access to you know the building possibly the night before. So I kind of looked into the company a little bit more, and. Try to see if anybody else made statements. And Roy Truly, uh, you know, the superintendent, uh, he not only said they had access. Again, he says, well, two men came in every night and they had keys to the building. And, you know, they worked overnight, pretty much saying exactly what Piper said, you know, uh, but saying that, you know, two people would come in, keys to the building, you know, and they were there the night before the assassination. So that kind of like just blew me away a little bit. Like, wow, here we got two people, you know, stating about this company. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to look and see if there's anything in the Warren (laughs) report. (laughs) Well, of course not. And, uh, you know, so then again, that just kind of piques your interest a little bit more. Like, you know, could they, this company who worked overnight, maybe, you know, set up a sniper's nest, maybe had everything, you know, in place, ready to go. And, and, you know, nobody, the FBI, you know, the, the Warren Commission, nobody looked into this company. And yeah. I couldn't find I couldn't find anything on them. And so, you know, I did a basic, you know, what we what this generation, what we do, we go to Google and I Googled Acme building maintenance and uh, I couldn't find anything. And then once I wrote my article on, on them. The only thing that comes up now is when you type in Acme Building Maintenance in Dallas is my article. <laughs> so it was kind of kind of interesting to to see that this company was like disappeared. Yeah, because this company has been around for quite quite some time. Even at the time of the assassination, they've been around for quite some time. 
Oh yeah, yeah. They were started in um, 1920 by uh, by a guy named uh, Frank Jones. Uh, you know, he took advantage of the downtown Dallas growing. Uh, you know, his maintenance company. You know, he cleaned buildings. Uh, you know, started off small, but then ended up with over 200 different companies throughout Dallas. Two million square feet they covered in in, in office space that they cleaned. You know, I was looking through the Dallas Morning News at one point, trying to find, you know, just different articles. And throughout the 40s and 50s, and there's even one from, like, early 1960s, that, that highlight and showcase Frank Jones. Like, there, there's his face. There's his picture. You know, Dallas's janitor, you know, is claimed in, in one article. And it just kind of, it's like, wow, you know, they, they were a pretty prominent company, in the forties and fifties, but once the sixties that, that, you know, after 63, they disappeared. And, and so did Frank Jones and I couldn't find anything on them after that. And so I really had to dig a little bit deeper and uh, to find out more because city directories, um, they were listed, you know, a couple times in the 1950s. Uh, so I, I contacted the chamber of commerce, uh, no, they have nothing on Acme building maintenance. Uh, the Secretary of State in Texas, that they they have. I was able to find uh, acquisition where he was bought out, uh, but other than that, like it was hard to uh, to find anything on this company. Yeah, and the, and the the timing of it is, of course, a gigantic red flag when you have a company been around for forty three years at this point, and then all of a sudden, right after the assassination. You know, this guy is ready to sell or right. shortly before, and, you know. Yeah. Yes. And and looking into it, you know, as I dug a little bit deeper, uh, I found uh, where he uh, sold the company in uh, April of 1964. And so I was able to I have a document that shows, you know, who the new owners were. And at the time when he had it. As big as they were getting, he kept his board of directors small. His wife was actually uh, on the board of directors. Uh, but I noticed a, a name that was on both of the, you know, the, the old company and the new company. And it was a guy named William Travis. And that, that's a name to kind of remember, uh, you know, because William Travis came on board with Acme, it looks like, around 1962. Uh, you know, I, I found that. So I started digging on him. He would he inherited a house because uh, he was relatively young at that time, and he, he inherited a house. But by November eighth, uh, nineteen sixty three, that house was he he wasn't making the payments on it, and uh, you know he had uh, he, he had been working at uh, Republic National Bank before he uh, you know he came on board with Acme, and uh, by. April 1964, it was William Travis that actually was able to buy out Frank Jones and his company. Yeah, that's amazing considering, you know, this guy's how he just lost his house to foreclosure and he's, you know, on the board of directors for Republic National Bank. Uh, you'd figure he'd have a little bit of money uh, or at least the ability to get some, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's what I was, I, you know, he... he by April 64, you know, he's on the board of directors. Uh, one other guy, uh, Milton Thomas, he was on the, you know, with the original company. He came on board with Travis. They changed the name somewhat to uh, Acme Building Maintenance of Dallas Incorporated. And then by June, 
he started selling parts of it to uh it was called the CT Corporation, a Chemtech Corporation and uh you know started slowly getting rid of uh ac- the old Acme because anytime you you're changing businesses like that, you know, employee records or anything go out the window and employee records of who was working in November 1963 and who had ac- access to the building go with it. And that's what really started really, you know, just getting me going a little bit more the more I found out about this company. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I can understand why, of course, the FBI didn't investigate any further because they, they had their guy, supposedly, you know, but they looked into all kinds of other stuff. Um, I just don't understand why this avenue wasn't explored a little more, um, you know, when you're talking about access to the building. Right. And, you know, and, and the company, you know, it, by the mid you know, to late 60s, you know, they, they were still – I found some where they were hiring, um, you know, maids, uh, you know, but nothing, no more articles in the Dallas Morning News, nothing showing the prominence of this company. Frank Jones at one point was part of the Dallas Citizens Council. Well, that's the, that's the group that, you know, put together the luncheon at the trademark for, uh, you know, the arrival of President Kennedy. And, you know, he was part of that group. And, you know, so he was, you know, well-known in Dallas. And, you know, he's out in 64. By 68, you know, the company's going away. And by 1972, William Travis abandons the Acme name and starts a new uh, company called Maintenance Incorporated. And Maintenance Incorporated went uh, and had uh, many other maintenance businesses under that, you know, that main name. They went by maintenance of, so you're talking maintenance of Dallas, maintenance of Fort Worth, maintenance of San Antonio, maintenance of Houston. I mean, he he went, he expanded the business a lot, and to this day, uh, William Travis is still the chairman uh, of the board at Maintenance Incorporated. And I, you know, I looked them up. I tried contacting them. You know, I just want to find out, you know, the origins of his company. Uh, you know, and where it started. And we know, I know where it started. It started with Acme Building Maintenance. Yeah. I mean, I, I looked on Google earlier today and yeah, sure enough, the website exists and it, it, they even have an About Us page, but it says, for over 40 years, you know, one of Texas's most premier, you know, janitorial services, but, you know, they, they're not admitting to being around at least past the past 40 years, I guess, when the name officially changed. Right. And that's, and that there goes the Acme name and there goes, you know, anything that had to do with the, the Acme company. Cause you know, why would you want to be part of something that's in a, a police statement showing that you had keys and access to the Texas school book depository, which, you know, allegedly the, the alleged assassin, you know, sh- shot weapon, you know, the, the gun. So, I mean, they, he, it seemed like he was trying to get away from that name as quick as possible. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, you know, we're, we're talking about this because, you know, of the possibility of somebody being able to either get one of these guys to do something or, you know, to pay one of these guys that are cleaning this building to kind of look the other way for a couple minutes while somebody slips in and does their business and gets out. Um. You know, it would have been very easy for somebody to come in and and kind of construct this little wall of books, throw some shells down, and uh, 
you know, hide the gun somewhere up there where it wouldn't be seen um, until it was actually looked for. I mean, you can't leave the gun laying on the floor. Somebody definitely might see that, you know. Um, <laughs> but the reason it's important is because this makes it possible. You know, it just makes it possible for Oswald to have been framed, which is very important. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, I, you know, you just look in... You know, I've been to the sixth floor, uh, you know, a couple times now, and you just, just, you know, I know they have it stacked. It's, you know, it's all, you know, redone. But just even seeing how they're stacked, and he, he would have had to take his time to get, you know, those book, those boxes were heavy, and you know, that would have took him some time. People would have would have seen what was going on, and uh, you know, so I mean, it is very possible that people who had access and worked overnight. Could have already had it set up. Yeah, or, or I mean, if even if the wall of books was there already, it might have been the perfect place to, you know, kind of place a sniper. You know, throw the shells down there, throw the you know throw the gun across the way a little bit, hide it in between some boxes because, you know, when you go back and you, and you listen to some of the testimony from the guys that worked there, you know, they were allegedly replacing the floors on the sixth floor that week. And they had, they had done the fifth floor the previous week. And of course, you're going to have to move boxes out of the way, um, in order for the, you know to have room to work. I mean, I don't know if they were putting plywood down over plywood, or if they were putting boards, tearing boards up and putting boards down. I'm, I don't know. Uh, you know, they didn't get too specific on that. But when you look at you know pictures and film of the sixth floor, you know, I, I don't see any evidence of tools or wood or anything else uh, really laying around uh, too much. Um, you know, but uh, apparently that's what they were doing. You know, Bill Shelley, the, uh, miscellaneous manager of the school book depository with his ominous title, um, was, you know, leading this crew of, 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 uh, Billy Lovelady, uh, Danny Arce, Charles Givens, Jack Doherty, uh, a few other guys. And, uh, that that's what they were supposed to be doing was was laying new floor. So you can imagine, you know, that the walls were, or you know, that the books are going to be stacked up, you know, nearer to the walls, nearer to the windows, to allow them to, to work. And uh, you know, it would have provided perfect cover, um, you know, to put somebody up there that would have the opportunity to shoot from that general direction. Uh, if you were actually having somebody shoot. Uh, for, like say, for instance, from the Dow Text building, you know, then the tra trajectories would kind of line up right. Um, you know, I, I'm still not 100% convinced, Tim, that anybody was up on the sixth floor shooting a rifle. Yeah, and I I was always unsure of that. And then when I when I found the the company, you know, the Acme company, it kind of was putting everything together for me. That yeah, you know what. They could have set this all up the night before and had everything ready because even where they found the rifle, you know, that was on the other side of the floor, you know, I mean, you know, placed in a spot. I mean, he, you know, he, for somebody who was short on time, you know, to get down to that, uh, that lunchroom, you know, he, 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 that was a long run across and to be able to place something in there, you know, it really kind of put, you know, finding this company kind of really put that that belief in me that, you know what, this could have been just all set up the night before. Well, yeah. I mean, this, this also uh, gives us a couple more questions because we know that the rifle was, was ordered under an alias 
Okay. Alec Heidel. Um, and you know, I always, I always thought that maybe possibly even if Oswald was, was involved, that it could have possibly been a scenario where he was set to, you know, maybe, uh, miss on purpose and create the uh, illusion that, that this pro Castro guy, Alec Heidel, who, who's part of the fair play for Cuba committee, you know, was, uh, you know, trying to kill the president because, you know, JFK, one of his big, his biggest complaints uh, from people about him was that he was soft on communism and, and guys like the extreme right wing, the John Birch society, the Minutemen, uh, these anti-Castro Cubans really, really had a beef with that. Um, and and made credible threats against Kennedy's life. You know, that's one of the big things, you know, we don't have with Oswald uh, a motive. Exactly. And, you know, that's, again, the whole setup. You know, this guy, you know, when he's yelling, he's a, he's a patsy, you know, he, he, he may have known what might have been going on, but he, I don't think he truly believed that he was going to be the one that was going to take the complete fall for everything. Yeah, and, you know... Something else with the rifle, of course, you know, we have Wesley Frazier saying that Oswald brought this package into the school book depository, but that it was only two feet long and even broken down into its smallest parts. You know, the Carcano was still almost three feet long because it had a very long stock and a very, very short barrel because it was actually made to have a bayonet uh, mounted under the barrel. And of course, you can't stab somebody if you have a super long barrel on the end of the gun. Um you know, so even broken down, it still wouldn't have been anywhere near two feet long. And, you know, we have Jack Doherty from that day saying he saw Oswald come in the building and he wasn't carrying anything. And, you know, of course. Yeah, and that's where that story of Buell Frazier kind of, you know, <laughs> the ever-changing story, uh, you know, he, he seems like a really nice guy. And, uh, you know, just, you know, he was young. And but his story has changed, you know, a few times in his different oral histories that he's given, you know, about it. You know, you can you can pull it up on YouTube and you can kind of just see, you know, go to the sixth floor, their collections that they have. Watch the oral history. You know, some of the things that he says, they, they've changed so much over the years. And, uh, and he goes from, you know, I listened to an oral history that he uh had done for the sixth floor and he had done with Gary Mack and it was done in sometime in the 1980s. And, you know, he goes, starts off, starts it off by saying he didn't really know Oswald until, and then he starts, well, he liked, he liked this, he liked that, you know, all these different things that I would know about a friend. He knew about Oswald, but then he claims another time. I didn't really know him. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I can't just imagine you know, them just not talking about anything. You know, here you have, okay, Lee Oswald, he's a young guy, he's 24, he's seen the world, he's been to Japan, lived in Russia, has a Russian wife, got kids already, and been in the Marine Corps, and now he's back in Dallas, but yet Buell seemingly would have no interest in either asking him questions or Oswald would have no, um, because, you know, uh, Oswald always seemed to me a little bit of a braggart, you know, like I've, I've been, I've, I've been there and done that, you know, so he would kind of be the guy that, oh yeah, you know, when I, when I was in Russia, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
it seems to me like these two would have talked a little bit more than they did, especially if what all the other school book depository workers are saying that he always brought Lee Oswald to work. Um, not just on the weekends going to Irving, but every day. Um, and this comes from like five different depository workers who said that Frazier normally brought Oswald to work and he normally parked there behind the school book depository on the bend of Houston street. And they would come in the back door together. That was the norm. According to a, a lot of witnesses who saw them arrive to work together every morning. Yeah, and that's and that just goes to show you that you know his how his story change changes. You know, a, a thing I, that I learned also was that there used to be a lunch truck that would come out, um, you know, in front of the depository, and you know some of the guys would go out there to eat lunch. And you know, Buell says that yeah, you know, Lee didn't go out there too much. I, I hardly saw him, and I'm not kidding you. Like five ten minutes later in the interview, he knows exactly what. Oswald ate from the lunch truck. Wait a minute. You just said you never saw him out by the lunch truck, but you know exactly what he, he he would eat. Just little things, you know. And like I said, you know, nice guy, you know, but just like you would tell, you know, an, an old high school football story, you know, you, you, you may have scored a touchdown, you know, in high school, but as the years go on, it goes, yeah, you know, that touchdown, you know, that won the district championship. You know, 10 years later, oh, you know what? That won the state championship. You know, it, it, your story changes over the years. And I think that's what we see with Buell Frazier is his story somewhat is changing, you know, as the years have gone on. Well, yeah, I mean, even even something as innocuous as how Oswald left the building, you know, even I think it's the, for the 50th anniversary, he did another oral history. And uh you know, he, he stated he stood there on the stairs and he watched Oswald as if he had come from the rear entrance walking down Houston. And then he followed him until he turned on the main street and lost him in the crowd. And I mean, I'm pretty sure it's been established that Oswald left out the front door of the school <laughs> book depository. That's just yeah. weird. And and I know we've talked about this before, but like he, uh, you know, after the assassination happened, he goes down into the basement to go finish his his lunch. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, I see. I see something like that. You know, lunch is going to take a pass that day. And, yeah, you know, no. he goes down into the basement. <laughs> who does that? I mean, who who watches who the president that? get their head blown off and then decides that they're really, really hungry? It's time to go downstairs and eat my lunch in the basement that I've never done before. You know, and I would love to have an opportunity myself to you know to talk with him. Uh, you know, just to kind of you know get an insight of, of some sorts. But I know he he's a he's a, he's a hard. Uh, He's a hard person to to get to talk, and you know I I've tried. I wrote him a couple letters, uh, you know, to his address, but uh, nothing. I, I received nothing back. Yeah, good good luck with that. He's got quite the team in front of him, and I think he's writing a book right now with Hugh Ainsworth. If that tells you anything, um, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. But you know, I I was on Chuck O'Chelly's show recently, and for two hours, we talked nothing about the oddities with Buell Frazier's story. And actually that conversation kind of piqued the interest of some, of some big willies down around uh, Dallas and associated with the Lancer conference. So hopefully uh, if it didn't happen this year, hopefully, you know, in the near future, um, he will be asked the right questions and be confronted with evidence that contradicts what he's been saying for the past 53 years. 
Yeah, and you know, the, and this year something that was different uh, at the Lancer Conference, which I enjoyed, was you know the sixth floor. <laughs> what was involved uh, this year uh, with the conference? You know, they were able to bring uh, Bill and Gail Newman uh, and Stephen Fagan, the curator, was you know able to interview them. So, so to have them involved, just kind of hopefully will show in these years to come that you know they're going to be able to you know. Not just you know help the re- you know just be part of the research community because you know we're a big part just as they are a big part of this whole thing you know uh, it's it was just good to actually have them involved and, and see them there. Yeah, for sure. You know, I I don't have big dreams about it or anything because you, you know how it's been for the past twenty years you know of their exist official existence, but uh, you know hopefully you know things can change and you know with the right people in place you know attitudes can change and you know with with hearts and minds you know people can change and institutions can change so you know hopefully it's the start of of a more symbiotic relationship with the with the research community not just the low nut side of things and Oh, yeah. You know, exclusive content for those guys and their and their documentaries we see every year on the History Channel and guys like Max Holland and 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 McAdams and all those guys. But you know, also you know, it'd be nice if you could walk into the sixth floor museum and they actually had you know conspiracy books for sale. You know, it's not it's not really hurting anybody. Uh, you know, just I, I for years I just never understood that whole concept of things because it always seemed to me like. You know, that if if you reached out to Gary Mack personally, that he had a much different opinion on things than he did officially. And he was a lot, oh, yeah. he was very cooperative with researchers, um, you know, over the years and very, very willing to uh, answer their emails and help their research um, kind of behind the scenes, you know. Yeah, and I actually, you know, uh, three years ago when I went for the 50th, I, I went to the they have a reading room uh, at the Sixth Floor Museum where you can, you know, research documents and, you know, they have books and, you know, videos. And I was in there doing some research and uh, he, he actually came in and I was able to speak with him. And, you know, if I had one question to ask him, you know, I was going to ask him about this Acme building maintenance. And I, so I did. I, you know, I asked him for a couple minutes. I asked him about it. He he didn't know who they were. uh you know, he he gave me his email address and he told me to, you know, keep him informed. And so, of course, right away, you know, I sent him an email um, and, you know, he sends me back an email rather, you know, quickly. And, uh, you know, it was maybe a day later and he sends me an email. Here's what I found on Acme Building Maintenance. And what he found was what I found, the statement by Eddie Piper and the, the statement by Roy Truly. And he <laughs> says, I hope this helped. That nope, that didn't help. Yeah, I already <laughs> but had that. He was there. Yeah. And you know, each time I've gone to Dallas, um, I've had to go to the reading room and I you know, just looking at different documents, look you know, different books, they've always been very helpful. But and this year was something that I've been, you know, emailing them a lot about was trying to get the, the guest list to the trademark uh that day because I'm I'm looking into Acme and Frank Jones being part of the Dallas Citizen Council, I wanted to see if he was going to be there. And I've been asking them for a few years if they've had that um, guest list and they, they have not. And until a week before I went on my trip, I got an email um, 
you know, from the head, you know, librarian there stating that, you know, they just, they just got the guest list, a partial list of it, and that they'll be more than happy to show me when I got there, which was pretty cool because when I got there, you know, they came out with the box that it was in, you know, they had the gloves, you know, and here I was looking through this, this document that not many people had seen before. And uh, I just received an email today, I guess my persistence with it, they're actually going to scan it, digitalize it, and it's going to be on their uh, site, um, you know, hopefully pretty soon. So we'll we'll all be able to get to see, you know, at least part of the 2,600 people that were supposed to be at the luncheon. You know, maybe names that, you know, we can kind of tie things to, who was there, who should have been there, you know, who knew what what was going to happen and didn't come. You know, just that was just the, you know, they they were they knew who I was, and you know they know I'm not a lone nut guy. You know I'm, they know that I'm looking into this company, and and they were able to help me out. Well, that's very cool, and and you know what, Tim, a lot of people that listen to this show live in Dallas or or have it one time, and uh, you know, so I would put the public plea out there now to guys like uh, Steve Rowe, who's kind of a Dallas historian, and uh, some other folks. Uh, if you know anything about Acme building maintenance uh, from, you know, the time of the 20s to like 63, whenever they disbanded and became something else and were bought out, um, or any information about Frank Jones, uh, who seemed to be a big willy about town and, uh, you know, getting rid of, written up in the newspaper, um, you know, I, just g- get in contact with Tim. And, and what's what's your email address that they can do that? Yeah, um, email address is you know JF Kennedy nineteen sixty three at yahoo dot com. In if they go to the uh, site, uh, there's a contact button they can click on, uh, and they'll shoot me an email as well. That makes it real easy, and they can follow you on Twitter at this uh, under the same handle, right? At JF Kennedy nineteen sixty three. That's correct. See, that makes it easy. You're you're all across the spectrum with the same same handle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just trying to get, you know, you know, we're the, the new, uh, you know, I guess you could say the new generation of researchers. We have the computer in front of us. We have the documents that are scanned, you know, so I'm just trying to, you know, I started this site, you know, looking into different things. It's kind of morphed a little bit, I guess, you know, as I've grown up, I guess you can say in my writing, you know, I try to show different sides of things, different perspectives. You know, it's not all, you know about documents, you know, it's about his memory because, you know, you know, bottom line, John F. Kennedy meant a lot of, you know, a lot to a lot of people. And, you know, that hope and promise that he had, you know, my grandmother included in that, you know, they, they believed in him. And, you know, I, I just try to show with, within some of my articles, what, what's missing, what, what we lost that day and, uh, you know, how we can relate it, you know, to, to now and how we move forward. Yeah, I mean that, and that sentiment is very apparent when you talk to uh, older folks. You know, even like I think my parents were in high school um, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and and look, my grandparents are still alive. They're like ninety-two years old. They remember very vividly um, that day and and what it means to them, and, and uh, you know about what happened, and you know uh, that's why I encourage everybody out there. You know, you. I, I'm sure Tim, somebody out there knows the answers to your questions. It's just a matter of finding them and, 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 uh, then being able to reach out. Um, because you know, there's, 
look, lots of people lived in Dallas. Lots of people knew about this cleaning company. And, uh, you know, I was thinking earlier today a little bit more about this cleaning company. Um, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, that, that this cleaning company could have had ties to, like, uh, organized crime. You know, because a company like that that has to put bids on or bids in, you know, to get jobs. Um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, you know, they could have been greasing some wheels or, uh, you know, giving some kickbacks to others who greased wheels for them. You know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, you know, that that's that's just another one of those aspects we, we don't know about this company. You know, I've I had the address uh, to the company, of, you know, the, where they they were located. They were located at 1901 Laws Street in downtown Dallas. And it, it wasn't too long uh, that I was able to find out that that building was demolished, and of course, and it's a parking lot. And you know, when I visited Dallas this last time, I was like, I, I need to go see. I, I just need to see where it's at. And you know, it's a parking lot, and the Dallas Aquarium's nearby. And it's actually maybe a seven-minute walk to the Texas School Book Depository because uh, I kind of that's where we walked from. And it's just, you know, that company was around long enough, like you said, that, you know, there's people that are still alive that worked for them, you know, were maids, you know, who knows? They, they did something, you know, a company that has over 200 businesses, you know, in downtown, uh, prominent businesses. We're talking, you know, banks, Texas Instruments. We're, we're talking, you know, big names that were in Dallas. So I, I still believe that there's people, you know, around that, that know something about this company and that's what i'm looking for i just i want to know the background to this company yeah or even worked for them or knew who was actually cleaning the school book depository or if they themselves were you know doing it you know nothing's out of the realm of possibility you know if these cats were like 20 years old they could very well still be alive today yeah exactly and you know i i i think in time uh you know that's why I've been trying to put this name, their their name out there, you know, kind of just get feels, you know, you know, I, when I was in Dallas, I kind of was asking just random people, you know, older people that I thought, you know, just, hey, you know, have you ever heard of this company? You know, of course, nobody, nobody's yeah. heard of them. And uh, just like me Googling, can't find nothing. Yeah, well, trust me, there's a, there's a lot of folks down there that know, know Dallas like the back of their hand and, and they can get all kinds of crazy information about stuff that it's very, very hard to get. So like I said, people out there, if, if you know anything or you can do some digging and find out anything more on Acme building maintenance or Frank Jones, um, make sure you shoot Tim a line at JF Kennedy, 1963 at yahoo.com for sure. Now, Tim, I sent you an article earlier today uh, to kind of read over, and it, it has to do with the school book depository and kind of uh, maybe a more sinister side to it, which combine that with. Yeah. Yeah, combine that yeah, with, you no, know, what read, could possibly have been going that. on there um, makes it very interesting. Oh yeah, when I, when I saw that and I, I started reading it, I couldn't uh, I couldn't stop reading it because it just you know you're reading it and things are just starting to like you know make sense you know a, a lot of things uh, within that article and you know it just kind of just again like I said fuels that fire um, and 
things, you know, a lot of people don't want to believe it, but, you know, that building is central. It's, it's key, no matter what. You know, whether whether he shot from that building or not, you know, that that's where... That's where they looked. That's where, you know, they found, apparently, you know, the gun. Something was set up there. Something happened within that building, whether overnight or that day, you know. So, you know, knowing more about the inner workings of that building, you know, before the assassination, you know, was very interesting to read. Yeah, because, I mean, it's central to the story. I mean, we know, of course, D.H. Bird owned the building, um, and... I think it was it was set up for an air conditioning company for like 20 years that went up belly up and then it was a like a grocery warehouse after that up until the early 60s and then I believe it just sat vacant for a year before actually um they decided to merge the operations of the publishing and the warehousing of the books all under one roof um and when you well, the article we're talking about and I'll link it up over at the website as well. It's called the spider web of uh, the school, the, the spider web of the, of something. <laughs> and I'm messing that up. Uh, it's a very long title uh, by William Weston. And I, like I said, I'll link it up over at tlgpodcast.com so everybody can read it. I think it was in the Dealey Plaza echo in 2006. Um, and you can find that on Mary Farrell, but I'll put the link up there for everybody. Um, just very interesting with, with the aspects of the people that were actually working there and, and Bill Shelley possibly being CIA and some of these gun running aspects like uh, using the boxes and the, and the inventory of the of books, you know, cause it, they were saying something like they were kept finding uh, these huge, huge cartons uh, that would, that if they were filled with books would have weighed like 500 pounds. <laughs> yeah. They found a, They found a crate, you know, a couple crates up there. <laughs> You know, what what books do we put that are in crates like that? Yeah, and and it, you know if it it kind of makes sense if you know if you if you're kind of trying to to run guns somewhere, you can't just you know put a bunch of guns you know on the back of a truck and send them out. You know, you gotta it's gotta it's gotta be like a a movement. You know, and a lot of these people, you know, even if you throw Jack Ruby into the mix, you know, and, and Klein Sporting Goods, you know, it's you got, uh, you know, Chicago comes up, you know, you got stuff being shipped out of there. So a lot of these publishing companies are housed there and, you know, it makes sense. You know, you, I mean, they're shipping books, you know, all over the United States and the world. And it's not out of the realm of the possibility people, you know, that, that something a little more sinister could have been going on here. Cause you know, we have Jack Ruby, uh, in the late fifties, you know, running guns down to the, uh, down to the rebels in Cuba. Um, and he even approached, I think his name was McCown, or, you know, he was a good friend of Castro's and tried to, uh, to uh, send some Jeeps down to there. Or I was trying to, but McCown didn't want to mess with him because he kept promising McCown money. And, uh, he wanted a letter of introduction to Castro and he, I think he told me he would give him like $25,000 for it, but Ruby never came through. Hmm. And of course that name, you know, comes up again because I, I think they talked to him for the HSCA and, and McCown claimed that Oswald came there with another man and tried to buy four, uh, hunting rifles for like $10,000 that he could have just bought at Sears or something for like a hundred bucks. Uh, but he says, he's, he said he swears it was Oswald. 
And then he thinks that he, if he would have sold these guns to Oswald, that, that it could have been easily traced back to Castro in Cuba. So very interesting circumstances going on there. But yeah, I thought it was interesting, you know, to to hear from, you know, one of the uh, uh, publishing house workers there. I think his name was, was it Kaysen? And and about his son and and how they were, uh, you know, in the process of, they, they didn't really want to move the offices from the Dow Techs over to the other building because the other building was kind of in bad condition. Um, but at least in the, in the, in the new building, they would have like heating and air conditioning, things like this. Uh, so that they were kind of stoked about that. And, you know, this kid would go over there with his father, you know, whether, while they're building the office over there in the, in the school, in the, you know, the Elm street building, um, you know, just a lot of stuff, you know, about when they were opening kind of starting operations there, I think it was in March or April of 1963. And then, you know, as I think they got more up and running somewhere around August and, and September. And, you know, they were just kind of starting to function properly, uh, you know, right about the time of the assassination. Yeah. And that's, that there again shows how, you know, coincidence, if you want to call it, you know, timing, you know, how it all, the stars all just kind of lined up just like that. You know, that's where the, the odd part, um, and all of that, you know, this whole thing takes place. It's, you know, everything just lined up perfectly for this to happen. And that's that's so hard to believe, you know. And, and reading those stories that you had sent me kind of puts it all, you know, kind of, yeah, maybe this wasn't all just, a, you know, a coincidence, you could say. Yeah, especially if that that Elsie Glaze interview with Bill Shelley is, is to be believed. Um you know, he, he admits that he was working with the CIA. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> and he's in charge of the miscellaneous department. You know, <laughs> what, what better cover can you have than that? You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, my God, I mean, you can just grease all kinds of wheels and, and pretty much do whatever you wanted. Um, you know, but, but very interesting stuff, man. And, uh, you know, that's why we can't discount any of this stuff. It needs to be looked further into for sure. And look, I, I, I praise your article, man, because it's something that, that I've never even thought of before, to be honest with you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I I mean, really, like, you know, you, when you're just reading things like that, you know, it, it just stuck. It just stuck out. And, you know, I'm hoping more people, you know, go to the site, kind of read up on the article, kind of, you know, the more people that maybe know about it can you know, we're, we're a community, you know, we're a research community. And, you know, we sometimes, you know, when you're in a, you know, a community, you you kind of get a little outcasted here and there. There's certain circles, certain groups that, you know, tend to stick together. But, you know, we all kind of need to come together and, you know, figure this thing out, you know. So, like you said, if anybody knows anything about this company, you know, by all means, send send an email, you know, you know, let's try to figure this thing out together. Yeah, for sure. You know, and Look, there's a guy named Roy Lewis who was an order filler at, at the School Book Depository, and he spoke at the other conference. And uh, you know, even even the sun shines on a dog's ass every once in a while. And uh, you know, it's 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 amazing that they found this guy and and they got him to talk. And it's something that our side should have done a long time ago. Um, you know, apparently this guy wasn't too hard to find or track down. It, it just wasn't on his radar. It was just something that 
that happened in his life and that he tried to forget. <laughs> and, you know, as he gets older, uh, you know, as the interest is building over the years, you know, it's, it's something I guess he's ready to come forward and talk about. And, you know, he had some very interesting things to say, you know, at that conference, um, you know, pertaining to the school book depository. And, you know, once again, if we could get to him and ask him the right questions, um, we might learn a little bit more about this whole thing as well. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, and, you know, I would love to just kind of ask people that work there, just kind of these different questions that I have and, you know, maybe one day we can, uh, the, at the Lancer conference or, you know, can kind of get these people that were there and, you know, so we can ask these, them these questions, you know, that, that we have. And instead of, you know, people that, you know, are thinking JFK, uh, the, the movie JFK, uh, got the house select committee going, you know? <laughs> so let's, let's get the right people asking the right questions. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe that nobody ever went and talked to Bill Shelley. He he died in 1996 in Irving, Texas. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? That and I think when, because I think William Weston tried to interview him, and he pretty much told him, "Hey, he said, he said, look, you know, I've I've said everything I'm going to say on the subject. Uh, if you want to know what I said, go read the Warren Commission. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe at one point in his life, he, you know, he was a little bit more willing to talk." Um, but he was 70 years old when he died in 1996. And there's not many other people that I'm even aware of that are left alive that work there other than Frazier and Roy Lewis. Uh, you know, nobody seems to know what happened to Bonnie Ray Williams, uh, or Harold Norman, Charles, Charles Givens. We know Lovelady's dead. Nobody seems to know where the hell Jack Doherty is. Eddie Piper's dead because he was old then. Um, so. You know, it's, it, we're 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 running out of time to get to the to the bottom of things from people that would know, you know, the answers to these crucial crucial questions that we do have, and then of course getting to talk or, or agree to an interview is a whole other thing. And I implore, I would hope, you know, some of these some of these researchers we got in Dallas, um, you know, to try and track some of these guys down because I think it would be, you know, fascinating to hear a lot more from Amos Ewins who was. He had like 14 or 15 at the time of the assassination. I know he's still around, um, you know, and some things that he, you know, he saw, he was there, you know, from people that who were there and what they saw, you know, it's very important that we get these people uh, interviewed by the right people and ask the right questions. And, uh, you know, time is our enemy, Tim. It is. And that's why we have to, you know, keep pushing forward. Just kind of, you know, you know we, we, we can't, you know, we can't stop because once we stop, then this whole thing stops. So, you know, we've got to keep carrying it on, you know, from those first generation researchers to second to, you know, to us. And, you know, we, we've just got to keep pushing. Oh, for sure. Well, look, man, I had a great time talking to you and, and we've got to do this again sometime. Um, you're my new best friend. I think I've talked to you more than anybody <laughs> else this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke, people. Uh, you'll never know the truth behind it. Um, but yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about your article and, uh, you know, future work. I, I, I'm definitely going to invite you to come back and look, people, there's more than just, you know, this, this one article over here at this blog that Tim does. A lot of great articles. Make sure you check it out. Tim, thank you All for right, coming on for the show, my help. friend. No problem. You hang on the line for me. Everybody, for more 
I'm going to put links up to the William Weston article, to Tim's website, and all kinds of other stuff we talked about here today over at tlgpodcast.com. That's it, people. This some bitch is in the can, beamed up to the satellite, down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.